0: Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John will take us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case through the trial and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, Lewin took us through his epic two and a half hour interview with Robert Durst in a New Orleans jail. In this episode, He describes his team's process of interviewing witnesses, deciding which witnesses were critical to his case, and the process by which conditional witness examinations were recorded in the years after the charges were filed, but before the trial began. That's all coming up right after the break.
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom.
0: A few quick program notes. Because the interviews were conducted by phone, the quality is often not optimal. If there are moments where the audio is unclear, I will try to repeat what was said. Also, in the event that you would like to revisit parts of the trial that John Lewin is talking about, I will periodically identify episodes from jury duty that cover sections of the case that Lewin references. You can find our in-depth coverage of the significant events that Lewin covers in this episode in the following installments of the Jury Duty podcast. Nick Chaven's examination is covered in Season 2, Episode 13. NYPD Detective Mike Strzok's testimony is covered in Season 2, Episode 5. And Medical School Dean Albert Cooperman's questioning is covered in Season 2, Bonus Episode 2. Lastly, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. And now, here's more of my conversation with John Lewin.
2: I want to talk about this period from 2016 to 2020, but particularly the period from 2016 to 2019 where you were collecting the additional witness interviews and what your strategy was during that time, what you were thinking about during that time, what were your most pressing concerns and how you organized that testimony during the course of the period before the actual trial started.
1: So starting with the filing of the case in March is when we actually were able to do the bulk of our investigation. And the reason was pretty simple, because prior to that time, if we did any investigation and Bob found out about it, then our concern, which turned out to be very accurate, was that he was going to flee to Cuba and we might never see him. Well, we'd have to wait until he came back, if he came back. So we couldn't really take that risk. Once he was arrested and was in custody and couldn't get out, that was a godsend because now we were able to go back and interview whoever we wanted without any fear that he would find out about it. That is really where the bulk of things happened. We interviewed hundreds of witnesses. Generally speaking, Habib and I were on every interview. I don't think there's any... Maybe one or two total that I wasn't on. There were some times when I would do the interviews and Habib wasn't able to do them. I was able to, in essence, conduct every interview with detectives, speak to every single witness, and that was extremely helpful. Our strategy was pretty simple. We wanted to make sure that there was not important evidence that was out there that we were going to miss. Anybody that we thought had important evidence, we interviewed. And we interviewed those witnesses, whether we thought the evidence was going to be helpful or not. One of the things that we always operated under was that, in the end, we always knew that, well, Bob committed all of these crimes. So even if a witness is saying something that doesn't seem to be helpful to us, that's more a perception of how it is it fits into the overall case. Nothing can really hurt us because he did these things. You know, if we had a witness who was going to say something that was going to be harmful, then that meant maybe that witness was wrong, maybe that witness was lying, maybe they were mistaken, etc. and don't be afraid of it. So that was our approach. Get all the evidence we can, good or bad, make sure we understood it, and that would lead to other evidence. That's what we did.
2: Great. What I want to move on to now is after he was extradited, you began, starting in 2017, a series of conditional witness examinations where the testimonies of certain witnesses were recorded. Can you tell me about that process and what your thinking was in collecting these interviews? It looks like the earliest of these is in 2017.
1: So I had a big advantage in doing this case over the defense, for sure, and, and probably over pretty much any other prosecutor would have handled in that for the last 25 years, I have pretty much exclusively done complex, cold, circumstantial murder cases. That means that there is an expertise and a knowledge that comes with doing the same kind of case over and over, that I'm aware of what different approaches I can use, what the law is in the area, and how I can exploit it, how it can benefit me. So one of the issues that I was able to take advantage of was I had a lot of experience doing what are called conditional examinations. I think I've probably done more conditional examinations in my cases than probably any prosecutor in the state. They are something that I utilize in every cold case because they allow me to call a witness in advance of preliminary hearing or trial as long as they are over 65 years of age. That's the only requirement. They have to be over 65 years of age, I have to give three days of notice. And the idea behind it is that when a witness is over 65, that's the number that's been chosen, that they are at risk of becoming unavailable due to ill health, etc. cetera. And so you have a right to get their statements in the record. So I love conditional examinations because conditional examinations, in essence, the idea is both sides are questioning that witness, and that's the only time they're going to be able to question that witness. So you do it in preparation with the idea of the witness
3: could be unavailable,
1: could be dead, could be too infirm. So that's everybody's only opportunity. So that means that where a judge in a normal hearing might be more inclined to limit what each side can ask, the smart judges give you a lot more rope. Because you have to, in essence, as a judge, allow both sides to ask any question that could possibly be relevant. So that means that in essence, objections such as 352, when it goes to the undue consumption of time, which is what a lot of three fifty-two objections are. What they mean is is that this question, although it might be slightly relevant, slightly probative, in essence, the relevance and the probative values. outweighed by the time it's gonna take to deal with it. Well, when you're dealing with a conditional examination, that objection's pretty much out the door because the idea is you don't know what is gonna be relevant later, how important it's gonna be, so if something's possibly relevant, you get to go into it. What does that mean practically? That means practically that each conditional examination allows me to fully explore and get into any statements of a witness that I want There's another advantage. Myself and my team were ready on this case. We knew it backwards and forwards. We knew that the defense did not know it as well and did not appear to be working nearly as hard as we were. So having a witness brought in, we knew we would be completely prepared, and we figured, which would turn out to be correctly, they wouldn't be. The other advantage that the conditional examinations offered is it allowed us, if we wanted to call witnesses who would not speak to us or who were uncooperative. And we could basically get their statements. If I knew that I had good stuff on them, I would call them at conditional examination or in a hearing related to a motion. And I would be able to explore where they were going to go, set up traps for later, and impeach them.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row?
0: In the next part of today's conversation, John Lewin goes into greater detail on why the conditional witness examinations were particularly important to his team's success in their prosecution of Robert Durst.
1: The conditional examinations were key in this case. Now, we videotaped them, and I told my team at the time that I believed we would end up being able to use these conditional examinations in lieu of trial testimony. So at the time, I don't think anybody on the team believed that was going to happen. There were discussions regarding whether it was going to be as effective. And number one, even if it was as effective, whether the defense would agree to it. I was very confident they would agree to it because in the end, the amount of work that it would take for them if we recalled the witnesses was going to be more than if they agreed to simply the conditional examination. The big advantage that the conditional examinations had, which I think my team ended up coming around on, was that if a witness becomes unavailable, then you're allowed to use it. It is extremely rare that you can get a defense attorney to agree that in lieu of recalling the witness at trial, you can use their recorded conditional examination. Now, there's nothing that prevents them from agreeing to it, and we were able to get those agreements. When that happens, you edit the conditional examination to take out all objections and all questions that have turned out to not be relevant. The big advantage we had was in essence, during the conditional examinations, we had objection after objection, interruption after interruption. And so when we edited the conditional examinations, you now had, it's almost like watching ESPN highlights. You end up getting all of the good stuff, no interruption, no flow that is interrupted, and it becomes very powerful. In addition, the defense ended up agreeing to certain evidence that later on they regretted and which, you know, Judge Windham at point said, hey, I wouldn't have let X, Y, Z in. Now, there was nothing, in my opinion, in the case, that was admitted that should not have been admitted. Now, whether a judge would have ended up saying, well, I'm not going to let you bring in X, that happens all the time. You know, judges are human, and even if you're right, if you're right on 100 issues, there are very few judges that are going to give you all 100, even if you're right. That's just not how it works. So the other thing that this allowed us to do was it allowed us to get stipulations regarding what evidence was going to come in, and we didn't have to litigate it. The use of the conditional examinations was probably the biggest key to the eventual success we had in the presentation of our evidence.
0: Lewin next moves on to explicate the earliest of his conditional witness examinations, beginning with the examination of Robert Durst's close friend, Nick Chaven. Again, we covered this testimony in Season 2, Episode 13 of the podcast.
2: Talk to me about how you scheduled these conditional witness examinations, how you made the decisions on which ones were going to come first.
1: Well, Nick Chavin, we were able to get an order from the court that we did not have to turn over the discovery on Nick Chavin until two weeks before he was going to testify. And the defense didn't even know it. So basically, if we back up, the defense was terrified and Bob was terrified. They knew about Nick Chaven. That's why... Dick flew to New York, was trying to meet with him. That's why they were setting up, trying to set up things with Susan Giordano. That's why Bob was trying to call him. They knew that Nick had damaging information. Bob was well aware and remembered that he had confessed to Nick and knew that that was very problematic. And I believe it told his attorney. So they kept trying to reach out to Nick and Nick kept ducking them. And there was all this discussion. This came out in the trial where, you know, Bob and Susie are speculating, and Doug Oliver, is Nick cooperative? No, I don't think Nick would ever say anything, blah, blah, blah. So on approximately February 1st, we dropped the bomb on the defense. We gave them the discovery, meaning that they now found out that Bob had confessed to Nick, and the conditional examination was scheduled for two weeks later. We made sure that we flew Nick out. The time that we gave Bob discovery on Nick Chavin, Nick was already out here and he had 24-hour guard by, uh, by LAPD, by Robbery Homicide Division. He was kept under 24-hour guard for two weeks and then brought into court under protection because obviously Bob had a history of killing witnesses and we weren't going to take any chances. That's the first one we did, because Nick was incredibly important. We needed to make sure that his testimony ended up getting memorialized. Now, the defense, in my opinion, made a big mistake in the case in that they decided that they agreed and wanted to bring in all of Nick's prior statements. So instead of us just playing, for instance, Nick's, I think it's October of whatever year it was when Nick ends up eventually telling me that, you know, yeah, Bob confessed, etc. We had originally contacted him in April of that year. I can't remember if it was 2015 or 2016. I think it was 2015. It doesn't really matter. They wanted all of Nick's statements played. And we manipulated them into that because we wanted all of the statements played because Our view was, if you heard everything Nick said, even when he's denying it, et cetera, if you heard all of it in order, it was very clear that this was a guy who was trying to protect Bob, and it just made him more credible. So they agreed to it. That's what came in at conditional examination. When we finished each one of the conditional examinations, I would say to the team, oh my God, you know, we hit it out of the park. This is phenomenal. And I knew that we would never be able to do as well at trial. And the reason we wouldn't be able to do as well at trial is because no matter what, even if it came out the same way, there were going to be objections. The judge would, would take out some stuff just because of those objections. So my goal from the start, after we did the conditional examinations, was to get the defense to stipulate to the conditionals. And it took us, we discussed this with them for a period of years, And the pattern would be they would refuse to agree to anything. No, we're not going to do it. And then the closer it came, eventually they would end up agreeing to it. So we decided to invest our resources, which means Ethan. And we edited these conditional examinations in advance as if they were coming in.
0: A reminder that Ethan is the audiovisually savvy deputy DA, Ethan Milius.
1: And we are the ones that chose what was edited. So that eventually, when the defense would agree, what would happen is, is we would give them, okay, you're now gonna agree, here's the edited transcript, and they would sign off on it. Now, one of the things that was very funny, as an example, they agreed to almost all of them. There, was, there were maybe seven or eight of them they would not agree to, one of them was Mike Struck.
0: Again, Mike Strzok was the NYPD detective who made a series of mistakes in the initial investigation into Kathy Durst's disappearance. We covered his testimony in great depth in season two, episode five of this podcast.
1: However, the judge ended up making a finding that Mike Strzok was unavailable due to uh, his advanced age and COVID, et cetera, And so it didn't matter that they didn't agree that he was unavailable to the conditional examination the judge found that that, uh, he was unavailable. Now, that would have still given them the right to go back and litigate line by line what was going to come in on the concealed examination. So we gave them our edited, preferred edited transcript, and for the most part, they had very few changes to any transcript that we did. As to why that is, you would have to ask them. I certainly would have tried to have done more editing than they did, but, you know, that's what happened. So we end up getting these stipulations on these transcripts, and so at trial, we end up playing Mike Strzok's edited conditional examination, and in the middle of it, we're getting objections from the defense. I don't know if you can remember, but Daguerre and Chesnoff were just extremely angry, objecting up and down, as if it was live testimony and stuff was coming in that they were unaware of, they had already heard all of his testimony. There had, already been, there had been a stipulation of testimony. So in essence, you're objecting to something you've already agreed is coming in. So that was entertaining. Uh, I, I still don't know why. Had they not listened to it beforehand? Certainly their response seemed to indicate that they were shocked by what he was saying. I don't know how that could be, but that would appear to be what happened.
0: As John and I were speaking, I pulled up a list of the conditional witness examinations in their chronological order. And I saw that the first was the questioning of Dr. Albert Cooperman, the Dean of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, who had reported receiving a phone call from someone claiming to be Kathy Durst on the morning after she was last seen. We covered Cooperman's testimony in season two, bonus episode two of this podcast.
2: That's amazing, actually. I've got conditional witness examinations in order, and I just wanted you to reflect on each of them briefly, if that's okay. So the first one is Cooperman. He's on the 14th of February. Obviously, Cooperman was at an advanced age, but is there a reason you scheduled him first?
1: Yeah, he was crucial because of his age. He was in his late 80s, if I remember, mid to late 80s when we did it. Al Cooperman was a very interesting witness, And the reason that he was so interesting was that when we went back to New York, so if we back up, one of the big mistakes that Mike Strzok made was that when Cooperman said that Kathy had called around 9 a.m. on Monday, February 1st, Cooperman took that as absolutely Kathy called. That was a huge mistake. It was incompetence. It was negligence because he didn't know certain things he didn't know for instance that well what time would Kathy if she's calling at nine o'clock or later that's when she's supposed to be at her rotation why is she going to be waiting until 9 a.m to call why is she calling Cooperman and not the rotation itself and then more importantly what made you think that it was definitely Kathy on the phone Those questions were never asked. When the reinvestigation took place in 1999 in 2000, New York State Police ended up coming up with the idea that, you know what, it's not that Kathy didn't call, it's that Cooperman is mixing up when the call took place, that the call took place the prior Thursday, that was basically in reliance on a witness that we did not call it trial because I didn't think this witness was credible. I'm not going to have to discuss who that witness is, but that witness has had told detectives that the witness was positive that the call had been made on Friday because Kathy had told the witness on Thursday that she had a test on Friday that she wasn't ready for. Now, Neither the original detectives nor the New York State police in their reinvestigation had gone back and figured out, well, what was Kathy doing that week? And why would she have had a test? Now, an advantage that I had is that my wife is a surgeon, and I've been with my wife through college and medical school and residency, so I had some knowledge about how rotations work and how it works with doctors, et cetera. And I knew that the third and fourth year, Kathy would not have been doing school. She wouldn't have been in class. What she would have been was she would have been doing rotations. So what happened is that we had gone back, and we had determined that not only would Kathy not have been taking a test that week, because that year she's not doing tests, but that she was off. There was no test that she would have been taking on Friday. She was off that week. She wasn't working at all. Whereas the reinvestigation had kind of focused on the fact that the call had been made, but it was made on a different day, I knew that it looked like the call hadn't been made at all. So when Habib and George and I went to New York and we sat down with Cooperman, what was incredible to us. I mean, literally could not believe it. We were so surprised. We sat down with Cooperman and as soon as we sat down with him, I'll never forget this. Habib and I realized that um, when we, and this is because when we sat down with Cooperman, with that oh my God, he didn't know it was Kathy at all. The whole reason that he even thought it was Kathy completely had to do with that's who she said she was. And Talking to Cooperman for five minutes, we knew that that's what happened, so it was very, very you know helpful to us that we were able to quickly figure out and talking to Cooperman, oh, okay, that's what happened.
2: The mythology that builds up around things that Bob and Susan said and did was really striking. I mean, I remember when I heard Fadwin Jami's testimony about what that so-called cocaine party was, was a family dinner with a couple of conservative parents. It, it was a complete gestalt on what the narrative was that had been established by Susan and Bob. So you got Cooperman.
1: So we got Cooperman. One of the things that we realized during the conditional examination is that the cross-examination would be in areas there, there was no organization, there was no plan, And you know, literally, they would be asking questions which didn't make any sense. They would be talking about New York geography, things that we would direct a witness in conditional examination, and the witness would be devastating. And then they would do the cross, and the cross would make things even worse for them. So we realized that not only were these witnesses great for us on direct, but that the approach that the defense seemed to be taking, it was a train
0: wreck. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us in our next installment as John discusses the conditional witness examinations of Miriam Barnes and Emily and Stuart Altman and offers his perspective on the prospects of prosecuting untruthful witnesses for perjury. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. You can find more information about this trial at CrimeStory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Tarricone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks.